1: Welcome to Stuff to
4: Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
5: Hey, welcome to
1: Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we have got a post-apocalyptic buddy cop movie for you today. That's right. So peel a
5: chocolate off the side of your fridge, um, (laughs) sugar down your coffee, and uh, prepare for the
1: ride that is 1992's Split Second. Now, this was new to me. I actually just finished watching it minutes ago. But you you had already seen this one, I think, uh, last year or the year before or something. So y- you brought it back up for the show, right? Right. I had watched it in one setting sometime in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And
5: uh, I was watching it late at night, so I got a little sleepy mm-hmm. towards the end. Not, not the film's fault, but my fault. Uh, this time around, I watched it in chunks. Often, first thing in the morning, while I myself was having a cup of coffee, so I really got to appreciate every detail, every nook and cranny of this film, uh, and I feel like second helpings of Split Second, um,
1: yeah, really paid off for me. Now, did this movie convince you to use about three quarters of a cup of sugar per mug of coffee? Yeah,
5: yeah, <laughs> yeah. As we'll we'll get into in this, we there's just such. Oh, reckless disregard for our hero's health as he uh, mm. he does he doesn't drink uh, which I think is uh, anymore. anymore anymore yes he's yeah. given up uh, the, the the alcohol but has taken to just reckless consumption of chocolate uh, and sugar heavy uh,
1: caffeine his and teeth it's glorious. Are like his teeth are like Swiss cheese like, <laughs> he is just <laughs> and I bet this world so this is a A dystopian future buddy cop movie. Uh, that is set in a future London that has been flooded by global warming. So, like, the water levels have risen. The Thames is now creeping out into the outer boroughs, I guess. So all the streets are now like the canals of Venice, just flooded with gross, muddy rat water. And the cops have to, like, drive around in them in these big Jeeps that can drive in the shallow water or actually navigate them in fan boats like it's a Bayou movie.
5: Yeah. Yeah, this is the the again, this is a 92 film. So, this is the future of 2008. Um <laughs> But uh, I, one of the things about this film is that I feel like it does have a really solid visual feel. It has a great uh, aesthetic. Um, you know, mm. just all these scenes of a, just a too wet London. Everything's at least partially flooded. Uh, it's just a soggy mess. And everything else, the rest of the world has a, a suitably industrial grime to it as well. Uh, it's, uh,
1: it, it, looks, it looks great. I, I really enjoyed the look of the film. It's the steam-injected microbial matte future of Highlander too, where everything is always just dark and moist and unpleasant.
5: Yeah, there's a little bit of uh, Blade Runner DNA in this for sure, uh, as, yeah. as we'll discuss. Uh, another great thing about this film, and we'll touch on this time and time again, too, is that It has all the hallmarks of a film in which the script has been reworked multiple times Mm -hmm. with different intents in mind. And its result, it results in a kind of chaos in key places, a kind of ambiguity that can, in the right proportions, work really well for a detective story or a monster story. And luckily, this film
1: is both. I would say for me this was one of the funniest movies we have watched so far for Weird House Cinema. And to explain what I mean, so it has it's like a cargo truck just packed with every uh grizzled macho buddy cop movie cliche and every dystopian sci-fi cliche all together, but at such a such a volume and velocity that that it does not seem just like lazy hack writing, but more mm-hmm. a kind of transcendent parody. But at the same time, it doesn't go to the level of parody where it's winking at you about it. it. It it plays it straight, which makes for a much funnier end product.
5: Yeah. So I feel like when we laugh at this film, and I laughed at it at too, we're not laughing at uh, uh, you know at, at somebody's failed art or something here. You know, we're not just we're not. It's not like a mean laugh. I, I feel like we are laughing in a way that was intended by at least a large
1: number of people involved in this film. Yes. Uh, Split second is not a failure. It succeeds. Yes. Though that seems to have been lost on people when it originally came out, who seemed to just regard it, uh, or at least some of the reviews we were looking at, people were just saying, like, "Ah, another, you know, hackneyed, cliched, dystopian sci-fi movie. Uh, You can skip it. I think this one is worth a solidly worth a watch.
5: Yeah, when I looked it up, after I'd seen it the second time, I looked it up in the Psychotronic video guide from Michael Weldon, and I found he didn't care for it. Um, he called it a, quote, boring, dull, misty science fiction movie. And, uh, yeah, I agree to disagree on this one, because I, I think it's pretty terrific. It's a lot of fun. Um, maybe it was just too fresh in 1996 and hasn't hadn't aged enough yet. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But then again, you could also argue that the tropes wouldn't have have been as uh, trod, well trod in uh, the early 90s as they would be in the year 2021.
1: Well, a lot of the funny stuff in this movie would continue to be used unironically for the next like decade or two in straightforward like A-list cop movies. Yeah. Oh, but I, I don't know if we've even mentioned also this is a monster movie. So it is a dystopian sci-fi movie. A, a grizzled buddy cop movie and a monster movie all crammed into one. Yeah. Here's your, here's your elevator pitch. Okay. In the
5: gritty future of 2008, a murderous horror emerges from the flooded London underground and only the gruffiest cop imaginable, supercharged on a diet of anxiety,
1: coffee and chocolate, can stop it. I don't know if you noticed that you said gruffiest, which I, I think that is that is the right term because he's gruff and he's scruffy. Yeah,
5: it's a combination. It's a hybrid. It, okay. He has absorbed the DNA of both qualities.
1: Let's hear that trailer audio. He can hear its heartbeat. Where he go? He knows it's out there. Somebody must have seen something. He knows what it can do. You're telling me. There's something running around loose in this city. Ripping the heart out of people and eating
3: them. Maybe he eats them for breakfast.
5: Now, it's really pissing him off.
2: Foster!
1: And his new partner. I work alone. Makes two. Paranoid people with guns are a menace to society. You'd be paranoid
3: too if you had a like this following you. Rutger Hauer.
2: Split second. Nice timing. Split second.
5: All right.
1: Well, did we spec- oh, sorry. Did we know, specify God. before that this is a Rutger Hauer film?
5: I don't know that we did. Uh, it'll probably be obvious to a number of people, um, and, and maybe there's a picture of Rutger Hauer uh, you know, mm-hmm. capping this thing off. But, yes, this is, this is a Rutger Hauer extravaganza. In the same way that uh, modern uh, film fans, a lot of you like the the cage rage, um, mm-hmm. this one is filled with Hauer power. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah, Oh, yeah. But there are other people involved, too. Let, let's start um, where we tend to start. Let's start with the director. Okay. A guy by the name of Tony Malum. Ah, uh, English director who also directed the 1981 slasher film The Burning. Malem also went on to do a fair amount of uh, documentary work and I'm um, to understand Split Second was a particularly grueling project for him and he had to he had to step away towards the end of the 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 production and let Ian Sharp finish directing the picture.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, I can imagine this might have been some trouble because you're dealing with a lot of flooded sets. I mean, almost, yep. you know, like every other set in this movie there's just water everywhere and i would imagine that makes filming very difficult and tedious
5: yeah and then you got to have a pigeon wrangler you got to have a rat wrangler oh yeah um, you got to have a howler
1: wrangler um and every every (laughs) everybody's got to be on hand i didn't uh check for the credits but was there an assistant to mr hower in there i didn't notice yeah i should have i should have looked um somebody had to get him his coffee the hower
5: power generator (laughs) Uh he might I think he might be self powering. I really don't know enough about uh we'll get we'll get to Howard in a second. Howard Power
1: um, is renewable.
5: Yes. <laughs> now the writer on this was a guy named Gary Scott Thompson. Um not a lot that I know about him except that he is the guy who gave us Too Fast, Too Furious. Ooh. Um he also wrote The Hollow Man. Joe, oh. is Too Fast, Too Furious one of the good fast furious movies?
1: No, you generally want to stay away from the even numbered ones until you get to around six or eight. Uh huh. Uh, okay. Once you get once you get past five, everything is like bad but worth watching. So everything's kind of good, bad. After that's where you're in like the flying cars era. Uh, the real okay. ones you want to stay away from, I think, are like two and four, which I remember being rather boring. All right, cool. I will, I will keep that in mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and also the Hollow Man. God, I love Paul Verhoeven, but that is just a dreadful movie.
5: Yeah, I I don't remember anything good about that one. Now, um, as for split second here, again, this script seems like it was probably changed a number number of times. And I think that was the case based on some just IMDb stuff Mm -hmm. I looked at. Um, It has a lot of the obvious signs of Blade Runner and Alien uh, on it, as you would expect at that time. And certainly casting Rutger Hauer, that was one of the films he made a big splash in, uh, Blade Runner. Um, But it also, to me anyway... I feel like there's a huge 2000 AD comics influence here as well. I, I have no proof of that. And um, Gary Scott Thompson, uh, I believe, is a, uh, an American writer, not mm-hmm. British. But uh, there are a lot of British folks involved in this one. And I feel like it thematically has a lot of the elements you find in those original Judge Dredd comics, you know, where there's a grittiness, but there's also this comedic uh, and satiric vein going through everything mm-hmm. like everything's over the top like and and we lose some of that in the uh the americanized versions of judge dread you know where in the the films yeah judge dread is um you know grumbling and and blasting things with an enormous gun but he doesn't have a humorous maid
1: or funny robots in his life like he does <laughs> in the comics. uh so one thing that's funny about this movie is that it is very British. It's not just incidentally set in London. Like the, mm-hmm. the setting is very pointedly British and some of the characters are very pointedly British in in the way they're characterized. But our main hero, Rutger Hauer, despite being Rutger Hauer, is a very American cop character. He He's very much like an American uh, tough guy cop uh, lead. Yeah, that's right. Despite, of course, being being Dutch.
5: Uh, Rudger Hauer <laughs> was uh, born in 1944 and died in 2019. In this, he plays Harley Stone, uh, a character we'll, we will uh, d- d- discuss at length here. Um, but uh, yeah, he was a, he was a wonderful actor, uh, environmentalist. He also had a nonprofit aimed at HIV and AIDS awareness called the Rudger Hauer Starfish Association, and he rode to prominence in the films of fellow. Uh, Uh, Dutchman, uh, filmmaker Paul uh, Verhoeven, who we just mentioned, and made a huge splash Mm -hmm. in American cinema in 1982's Blade Runner. Uh, He's also very notable in 1985's Lady Hawk and 1986's The Hitcher. Yeah, and his work with Verhoeven culminated in the 1985 medieval adventure film that I have not seen, Flesh and Blood, which co-starred Jennifer Jason Lee and Ronald Lacey. And I understand that the two disagreed on the nature of his character. Howard wanted to get away from villain roles, but Verhoeven wanted him to play a more morally am- ambiguous character. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting wrinkle to, to think about because in this, obviously, he's he's our hero. Right. And I can't think of a lot of films like later on where he played anything other than a protagonist, you know, Uh, Hmm. like what are the big Rudger Howland villain roles? Yeah. You name Blade Runner, uh, the hitcher,
1: but anything else? Well, I would argue that maybe you shouldn't even think of him necessarily as the villain of Blade Runner. I mean, in Blade Runner, I would say he's something more like the creature in Frankenstein as someone who, who does bad things, who harms people, but it, in other ways, is sort of a sort of a, a babe in the wilderness, like he he's he's lost and desperate and doesn't know what to do with his own mortality.
5: Yeah. But you can easily imagine the like the, the, the filmmaking system they, after Blade Runner are like, oh, can we get Howard to play this terrorist? Can we get Howard to play this uh, this evil king? And it sounds like he was like, I don't want those type of roles. Uh, I want I want something different. I want. And, uh, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I my mind come turns to Batman Begins.
1: Right. He's a corrupt businessman. He's a corrupt
5: businessman. But he's yeah. yeah, he's a suit in that.
1: Oh, I think he's also I remember. God, I haven't seen Sin City in many years, but I remember him being some kind of evil, corrupt, like, oh, clergyman yeah, he does. or something in that also.
5: Okay. Well, he maybe managed to sprinkle some villainy uh, in the later uh, movies. But yeah, he went on to be in a ton of uh, films and TV projects, Mm -hmm. 175 acting credits on IMDb. And they really run the gamut from B-movies to blockbusters. Like he was just in a lot of stuff. Uh, And and he's generally, I've never seen him in something where I'm like, ah, that's boring. You know, he's, he's, he's an exciting element, even in a bad picture.
1: Oh, you should try to watch Dario Argento's Dracula. <laughs> okay.
5: Yeah, this <laughs> the is the vi- second time you've uh, you've challenged me on that one.
1: No, I'm not saying I've watched it. I'm saying I've never been able to watch more than like 60 seconds <laughs> of it. Okay. Uh, but uh, so I guess if we're talking about Rutger Hauer, we got to talk about uh, the Tears in the Rain monologue, mm. which is, this is a, a famous moment, probably the most famous moment of Rutger Hauer's career, also the most famous moment of Blade Runner, the movie. Uh, the context is, of course, Harrison Ford in the movie plays Deckard, who is a type of police officer or bounty hunter who is hired to quote retire escaped replicants. Replicants are, you know, the sort of uh, androids or humanoids who are created by this uh, by this company to essentially be forced labor, and they have a very short lifespan there so that they don't, you know, get off and and get ideas about independence. They can only live for something like four years. And so the plot of Blade Runner is that there are a group of replicants who escape and they're trying to find a way to get more life. They want to extend their lifespan. Meanwhile, Harrison Ford, uh, Deckard is, is trying to hunt them down. And in the end of the movie, he's chasing around in a building while the rain is pouring outside. Uh, He's chasing Rutger Hauer's character, a replicant named Roy Beatty. And, Uh, There's a moment where, where, you know, Deckard is almost about to fall to his death off the roof, but then Roy Beatty grabs his arm and saves him, despite, you know, him being there to to kill him. Uh, He saves him and then he gives this. Speech, it's a a soliloquy. He says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. It's a beautiful moment and a beautiful metaphor. But what I've read is that uh, apparently there was a line similar to that already in the script, which I think was written by David Peoples. But uh, apparently, Rutger Hauer himself rewrote the line before filming. And he was the person who added the comparison to Tears in Rain, the most famous part of it. So that's from the actor himself. Yeah,
5: I've always been impressed by that. Uh, And of course, that we, that monologue we've talked about on the show before, oh here's a line that DJs should be using in their tracks. Um, they, they 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 definitely got the memo on Tears and Rain because man, I can think of so many different mixes uh, and tracks where uh, something from uh, from Roy pops up mm. uh, pops up on it's, uh, it, I mean it's just a great piece
1: yeah uh, yeah, it's such a great line that in a way it's kind of lost its power by being over analyzed and overquoted.
5: There's a band uh, called Grumbling Fur, and they have a uh, they have a song titled "The Ballad of Roy Batty," and it's uh, this this kind of somber British song, but it's the the lyrics are that that uh, monologue. Oh wow. Yeah, so check
1: that out if if you want. Um, but, but here, a very different role in this. So he, yes. he plays in in Blade Runner. He is a tragic uh, Frankenstein's creature type character who uh, who doesn't understand the point of his own existence. He wants more life, but he can't have it, and he and he ends in in this tragic introspective state. In Split Second, Howard is just Howard is the ultimate like beefsteak grumpy cop. Yeah, yeah, he
5: is he is something. Um it, yeah, he it's worth noting that he was, I believe, 47 or 48 at the time. So this is, you know, slightly older Rudger Hauer, uh, mm. certainly compared to, uh, like, Blade Runner and stuff. He's carrying a bit of weight in this, though, though nothing that feels, like, awkward or anything. But it, per- I think feel like, it, feel like, it feels like his physicality works perfectly well, portraying this cop on the edge who's not taking <laughs> care of himself, who lives this reckless lifestyle, and he's a bit of a slob. And, uh, yeah, again, while they avoid the hard-drinking stereotype in this, because he's apparently quit drinking, he does smoke like a chimney just constantly smoking consumes copious amounts of coffee sugar chocolate and and man that name too, harley Harley. stone it's motorcycle plus rocks you know (laughs) you couldn't do any better
1: than that that was the thing that convinced me to watch this movie i looked it up and i saw the main character is named harley stone and i was like i'm in yep I mean, he yeah, and he has, I think, a Harley in his apartment. So it's, I guess, that's part of it. But yeah, actually, he, no, it, no, it was multiple things. I'm sorry, I have to add on. His name okay. is Harley Stone, and then of course it becomes a here's a new, here's your new partner, buddy cop movie. It's like Tango and Cash, but set in the future, where there's a, he's got a partner who's a, the opposite of him in every way, and this mm-hmm. partner is named Dick Durkin.
5: Yep, Harley and Dick, the adventures of uh well we've we've touched on the the tropes here but like one of the big tropes with this guy uh with harley stone is he's the worst i can't stand him but he's the best we've got to (laughs) use him like he's just a walking disaster but nobody does it better than harley stone so we have to use him
1: he's the only one who can get our man and or monster exactly it's the you're a loose cannon you're off the force you're the only man for the job and Howard
5: is is I mean he he is so good in this because this character this Harley Stone. At times, there are all these moments where you realize that the film is winking at you, that it's, you know, that he's just so over the top. He's just doing mm-hmm. what he's doing and the way he's acting is just it's it's just ridiculous. But yet, Howard also walks that line to where he is, um, you know, he, I, I feel he is definitely cool in a lot of the film, too, <laughs> in a way that, that many actors wouldn't be able to pull that off. You know, like like here's this, uh, this you know, this this over the hill uh, uh, rundown cop. But, yeah, he looks pretty cool in those glasses and that giant <laughs> leather coat. Yeah, it never gets too juicy. Yeah. (laughs) So it's ultimately just a joy to watch him. I think some of the best scenes are ones where they're just we're just going about about a day. You know, it's a ride along with Uh Harley Stone as he does things like like shave at a bar where he has uh, uh shown up for breakfast, you know, things right. like
1: that. Yeah, he goes to like a moody nightclub for breakfast, where they're playing Knights in White Satin on the jukebox, mm-hmm. and they give him a big old plate of full English, uh, I think it is a full English breakfast, meaning that it's not just eggs and bacon, but there's baked beans on that plate, and he's slurping it up and shaving with an electric <laughs> razor over his plate. Yep and yeah so oh my god he's just so good but let's talk a little bit about that partner
5: uh this would be again detective dick durkin um played by an actor by the name of alistair duncan um you know i i love this guy too i think he's great in this role like again (laughs) he hits just the right note like he's he's not too comedic
1: he's just comedic enough um He, he's the perfect foil to Harley Stone. So they're setting it up like a, you know, a, a Riggs and Murtaugh or Tango and Cash kind of thing where they're, they're opposites, but they end up complementing each other. And this guy, this guy is the, the wimpy bookish nerd who went to Oxford.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, not completely wimpy. He's a, he's very fitness conscious. Oh, right, that's um, true. And, uh, and and he's uh, yeah, but he's by the books. He's mm. um, he's. I think he's doing tai chi in one scene, and he, of course, uh, Rudger Howard's character Stone is like just so anxiety ridden. At one point, he's like, "Let me give you a massage. Let me oh, yeah. <laughs> let me help you out." He's like, "Don't touch me!" Like sticks Don't a gun me. in his nose. <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, he's he's great in this. Uh, Duncan, perfectly fine actor. He's done an increasing amount of high profile voice work over the over the years, especially in major video games. Uh, but he was a steady actor in the t- '90s as well. Showed up on things like uh, Highlander, the TV series, uh, Hercules, Murder She Wrote, so a uh, bunch of stuff. Wait, he's not the voice of Wheatley in Portal Two, is he? He might be. I don't know. I didn't look that one up specifically, but uh, I did notice that he's okay. You know, for instance, you know, the the Mordor no, games where you no, fight the
1: orcs. I'm sorry. I looked it up. No, that's a guy named Stephen Merchant. But okay. uh, but for a second, I thought it was possible.
5: Stephen Merchant, they're kind of cut from the same cloth, though. I can imagine Merchant in this role. Uh-huh. But no, uh, Alistair Duncan, I believe one of his more high-profile roles is those the the Shadow of Mordor games. He oh. plays like the wraith elf that is your alter ego or whatnot. I, I haven't really played the games, but he's that character.
1: Oh, Okay. But let's not forget our female lead, Joe. Ooh. So this movie has Kim Cattrall in it. She plays uh, Michelle McClain, Uh And so, of course, Kim Cattrall is a Canadian actress, probably best known today for being part of the main cast of Sex and the City. Uh, But with a long career of lots of interesting movie and TV roles, uh, more in the weird house wheelhouse, uh, you might say Big Trouble in Little China, in which she Mm -hmm. plays Gracie Law, or Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, which I think she was filming either right around the same time as Split Second or simultaneous to Split Second. Uh, Yeah, because of the hair, right? Right. Right uh and i i got to say i love kim Cattrall. uh, people who have only seen her in like more straightforward roles i think might not appreciate just how good her comic timing is and how good she is at walking that fine line which is like exactly what she's doing in this movie that that tightrope of like absurdity and parody but not quite
5: yeah yeah i i agree absolutely um certainly big trouble in little china is a great example of her work um and, but prior, prior to uh, Sex in the City, she, she was in a fair amount of genre pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, she kind of reinvented herself, herself, I guess, with the Sex in the City role. But before that, she was in, uh, she was in an episode of the nineties outer limits. Uh, I don't think one I've seen yet, but I'm going to get to it as I steadily make my way through all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. but she was also in a 1998 TV adaptation of Peter Benchley's creature in Ooh. which she and Craig T. Nelson battle a Nazi engineered killer shark.
1: I watched that on TV when it premiered when I was a kid <laughs> I think I was in I don't know it would have been like sixth grade or something and yeah ooh, Wow it was a it was a winner
5: so Kim is great in, in split-second given the, the limited amount of stuff that she's given to work with um, so th- this is a film where she doesn't have much of a role but she manages to shine through that role anyway yeah Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
3: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
2: Jean. Eugene
1: Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it.
0: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
2: So you write the books, Gene. I have last on the business. I understand now, it's a wise man, Marie a wise woman.
0: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage
1: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered.
0: (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner?
2: Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about
5: some of the other bit players in this. Oh, you have this guy, Alan Armstrong. Is that who, not just
1: Alan? Or is is it, it Alan? I'm sorry. It's, it's spelled
5: Alan, uh, okay. but I guess it's Alan. Alan no, 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 I don't. You could be right. I, I don't know. We're, I'm just going to call him Thrasher because that's okay. his character's name. Um, so born in 1946, uh, Armstrong is a great British character actor. Uh, you'd recognize him, for instance, very recognizable face, but he's been in films such as Krull, Braveheart, Van Helsing, and Sleepy Hollow, the the double there, and tons of TV work. And he's great in this because he plays the, I mean, this is a trope too. You have your problematic cop, but then you have their just just completely uh, enraged boss who just can't take this guy anymore, but he's the best, so you've got to work with him. And that's what Thrasher is, except Thrasher manages to be like the angriest, Foulest police chief ever, like just bristling with, with 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 rage. Just his face, his kind of already gargoyleish face, is just twisted with anger and just resentment of Stone. <laughs> and he he also has I love his hair in this because he has this great dying widow's peak. You know where it's like mm-hmm. it used to be a widow's peak and now it's barely anything, and it somehow elevates the character to an
1: even greater level of just just again just such visceral hate in every breath takes at the british casting office they were like get me the actor whose every breath says you're off the force here's your new partner yes <laughs> except
5: louder and more intense yeah
1: because uh With yeah, some expletives the, in there yeah so he's he's wonderful in
5: this and he has some some great scenes now the the next actor of note uh sadly doesn't really have any great scenes but is just by all accounts uh, a tr- was a tremendous actor uh pete Postlethwaite, mm-hmm. who lived from 1946 through 2011. Uh, I, I love Pete. Yeah. he. So if you don't recognize the name, look him up. You'll recognize the face. Tremendous English actor with, uh, you know, instantly recognizable from such films as Alien 3, uh, In the Name of the Father, um, Amistad, The Sharp Films, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. I believe he was the big game hunter character in that. Yep. Yep. He was. Yeah, great look, great actor. Uh, again, not much of a role for him in this, uh, but uh, but you know he's great in so many other things. We have to we have to point him out.
1: Well, most of the parts in this movie are sort of underwritten compared to the main two cops. Yeah, but the cast members really do do shine through, like you were saying with with Kim Cattrall and uh, and Alan Armstrong. They they all kind of bring you to attention.
5: Now, one interesting thing about about uh, uh, Apostle Thwait in this is that he, he's a guy who largely kept out of the spotlight, but he was passionate about various causes, including uh, anti-war protests and environmentalism, which is which is interesting given the you know, the the environmental, I don't want to say theme of this film, but like mild sprinkling uh, to the plot, uh, because he starred in a film in 2009 titled The Age of Stupid, in which, quote, a failed archivist looks at old footage from the year 2008 to understand why humankind failed to address climate change. So basically, it's a documentary. And at some point in in making the film, they decided they wanted to add a like a fictional uh, narrative structure to it, where it's like somebody from the future looking back on today. Mm-hmm. And they reached out to him because they knew he was great. And they knew that he was interested in these causes. And he uh, ended up signing up for it. And it, uh, it it allowed the film to just to reach a lot more theaters and to, to really reach, reach far more people with its uh, message. So
1: it's a documentary, but has a sci fi narrative structure. Interesting. Now, there's another character in this movie that is very weird, but we don't get to until like the last 10 to 15 minutes of the movie.
5: Yeah, like I kept thinking, did I miss Michael J. Pollard? Because Uh Michael J. Pollard, who is in this, he plays this rat catcher character. Um, And it's a very small role, but he has a very fun scene with our detectives. Now, uh, Pollard, American actor, uh, lived 39 through 2019, uh, probably best well known for his, uh, one of his earlier roles in Bonnie and Clyde. Well, I say earlier roles, but he also was in a lot of TV stuff before uh, that, like Andy Griffith's show, classic Star Trek, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but he wait, was in 67's Bonnie and Clyde. Is that, that's the one with uh, Warren Beatty and yeah. Faye Dunaway? Yeah, yeah. The Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, yeah, he has a. it's been a long time since I've seen that, but I can picture it like I remember his character. Pollard was also, I mean, he was in a bunch of stuff, but you might recognize him from uh, Scrooged. He was in um, Roxanne in 1987. And some listeners to Weird House especially might re- remember him from uh, Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh-huh. Uh, he was also like a lot of uh, actors of, of that generation. He showed up on Tales from the Crypt mm-hmm. in an episode titled Came the Dawn. So he was in a lot of stuff. Uh, always good. All right, uh, just a couple of more. Two small acting roles of note here. Ian Dury plays his character, J.J., uh, very small part, but this is Ian Dury of the Blockheads, and he was part of the new wave and post-punk scene, Live 42 through 2000. I don't really know him uh, or his work, but it's a fun Easter egg, I imagine, for some of you music fans out there.
1: I don't remember who J.J. was in the movie. I think
5: I'm like 35% sure he was the bartender, but I, have, I don't remember. Hmm. Uh, I just know he's in it. And then there's this also this character uh, uh, in it named uh, Pat O'Donnell, played by an actor by the name of Tony Steedman uh, or Stedman. I'm not sure. Uh, okay. But uh, this is an English character actor who played Socrates in Bill and Ted. Oh, OK. Yeah. So in this, he's just the guy who checks out weapons uh, at the London Police Department.
1: Well, actually, all he does is he says, like, no, you can't have that. And then they grab it behind his back.
5: Yeah. He's like, that gun's too big. And they're like, no. We're we taking need, it. In. We need big guns. He's like, "All right, I did what I what I could."
1: Now, um, getting
5: into some of the other people involved in this, this is also pretty interesting because you listen to the musical score in this film, and it's, for from my point of view, it's not bad. It's uh, it's at least not you know classical piano, but. <laughs> But it's, it's, you know, it's ultimately kind of lukewarm. It has kind of like hell razory, hell, hell synth corals uh, at times, you know, it's got mm-hmm. some synth drums and so forth. So it works for me. I never hated it. Uh, but it's interesting considering what might have been. Oh, that's right. Now, how did you come across this next fact? Give me, give me the story. Well, there's not much story. Like a lot of these things, I think I was just reading IMDb too much, oh, and okay. uh, I and I, it was noted that the filmmakers uh, uh, actually rejected the original score, which was composed by the legendary Wendy
1: Carlos. How could you reject a Wendy Carlos score?
5: Yeah, I mean Wendy Carlos uh, is, a, is a is a is a legend. Uh, basically, twofold. On one hand. Uh, she wrote the scores for this, like The Shining, Tron, A Clockwork Orange, but also just in general, she's a true pioneer of electronic music and the use of the synthesizer. Yeah. Um, and as we touched on on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before, she's also a great solar photographer. So how could you say no?
1: yeah it's crazy so the yeah the score they ended up going with i feel like is, is extremely generic uh it's, mm-hmm. it's just uh, do 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 do, do. the standard ominous future drums and drone uh and i went and i looked up some clips because uh, you provided a link there's like an all music page where uh, Wendy carlos at some point released a collection of lost or themes from movies including a couple of uh things she composed for this movie that were, never actually made it into the film. Mm-hmm. The two tracks here are Visit to a Morgue and Return to the Morgue, which I thought was funny. But I checked them out, and having heard both side by side, I'm certain her complete score would have been a hundred times better.
5: Absolutely. I listened to, to these tracks as well, and and I think they sound great. I'd love to, I'd love to, to hear the whole thing. Uh, if you want to listen to these tracks, the album to look up is Rediscovering Lost Scores Volume 2. I'll try to include a link to it on the... The, the post I do for this uh, episode at samu2music dot um But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's quite good. Sadly, I don't think you can
1: find this on Spotify right now. Wendy Carlos is still alive. I don't know if she's composing anymore, but filmmakers out there, if you have the opportunity to get a Wendy Carlos score in your movie, don't pass it up. Now, one last interesting uh, individual
5: involved in the creation of split second, Stephen Norrington was involved in the creature design. So, some of you might recognize the name. This is a London-born effects makeup artist who worked on such films as Aliens, Young Sherlock Holmes, Hardware, Alien 3, Jim Henson's The Storyteller. And then he would go on from from this to direct a film titled Death Machine with Brad Doroff and Richard Brake. Uh, before I think any, I, I I don't think I knew who Richard Brake was at that time, but he's he's since gone on to make a name for himself as a as a reliable, uh, uh, intimidating character actor. But uh, he followed this film up. Uh, Norrington did uh, directing 1998's Blade, um, the 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 film that started all of the, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, starring of course Wesley
1: Snipes. Now I know you're kind of a Blade head, and I. The only, I think I've only seen the original Blade once, many many years ago, like in middle school, and that's that's about all I know. Oh well, you need to see it again because it it absolutely holds up. Uh-huh. Um, it's, I do remember it's a I, I remember a lot of gross scenes where they're like they're like shining a flashlight on a on a big fat vampire to like burn his skin and make him talk.
5: Yep, yep, that happened. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, that that's that's a fun. I love the first two Blade movies. Um, and uh, and that, that was that was Nor- uh, Norrington here, but uh, from there he went on to make a film titled The Last Minute that I don't know anything about, and then the film that caused him to I think peace out on directing entirely, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> uh, but I believe he has continued to work in effects
1: and other areas of filmmaking. I never saw that one, but it is notorious. I remember. The day that my friends had been out and seen it earlier in the day and then I was hanging out with them later in the day and they could not stop talking about how awful it was.
5: Oh, yeah, I, I never saw it. I read the the graphic novels by Alan Moore and, and loved mm. those and it has so many tremendous uh, actors in it. But uh, yeah, it was it was apparently no fun for anybody uh, that was involved in it or saw it. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, this brings me to a good point that I feel like we, we need to, you know, make sure we hammer home every now and then is that, you know, between Norrington's case and uh, Malam's experiences that we mentioned earlier, I think it's always worth reminding ourselves that it's an endeavor uh, for any motion picture to be made. And it's ultimately kind of a minor miracle that any creative process of this scope actually reaches completion. Uh, and the stresses of, of creative projects like this are very real. So, um you know it's uh it you know it's surprising you don't see more pictures where people you know just have to step away from it because it's too much
1: yeah it's one of the the kind of beautiful things about b cinema uh, emphasized in even in great movies like the movie ed wood about the actual mm-hmm. director ed wood that b movies to whatever extent they succeed or fail can often be funny but it's also uh, it's kind of uh it's kind of magical that they get made at all <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into
5: the into the movie itself. Um, this one starts out with an opening uh, scroll and opening uh, some text to read, which I always like because I feel like that way time travelers from the early days of cinema won't be instantly out of place when they go to the movie theater. You know, the, <laughs> right, it's, yeah, it's going to yeah. be a talkie. It's going to be a lot, but it's going to start off the old fashioned way with some uh, words on a screen.
1: And a, and a guy playing the piano in the side of the theater.
5: <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, basically, the the opening scroll is after 40 days and nights of torrential rain, the city is largely submerged below water, a result of the devastating effects of continued global warming. The warnings ignored for decades have now resulted
1: in undreamed of levels of pollution where day has become almost endless night. Uh, you know, I'll have to check, but I do not recall endless night being one of the uh, one of the proposed consequences of a warming climate.
5: Um, no, that's day for <laughs> night sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Now, um, uh, yeah, this one, this and also it, it, it also brings up the idea that it was just it recently rained a lot, which yeah. also seems out of keep like I thought it was just the fact that London is pretty flooded these days because of rising, uh, yeah. uh, you know, rising sea levels, but also some other uh, like sinking issues that have been going on with the city for some time.
1: Yeah, well, so they start while they're showing this. Text crawl like the Star Wars thing instead of a a star field it's panning over an aerial shot of a flooded London with Mm -hmm. a kind of sinister tangerine sun flaring in the background and it's brighter in that opening panning shot than it is at any other point in the movie true true. But I did find myself wondering, how did they achieve this shot? Because it does actually look like a, an aerial shot of London, and it does actually look flooded.
5: Yeah, there are details you see, especially as they sort of reuse this footage later in the film. You can see like, oh, yeah, that's that looks like a lake over uh, here.
1: And you know they didn't do it digitally. This is 1991. Yeah, so I was wondering what was going on there. I mean, uh, did they did London actually flood at some point? And this was real footage of it that they digitally altered somehow? To, hmm. I don't know. But it's convincing. It 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 does set the stage. And again,
5: the, the 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 city is just a flooded mess throughout this entire picture. You buy it completely. It's not like they just give you this bit of world building and then that is ignored for the rest of
1: the film. No, it's present in virtually every shot. Mm-hmm. And one thing I like is that before you see the title of the movie, you just see Rutger Hauer red letters, yep. as it should be. Yeah. But then when the when the title of the movie comes up it looks really funny.
5: Yeah, for a film with such a strong sense of its own aesthetics, the title card just looks really dumb. The letters are like these big blue balloons like they should be floating in the sky of a Mario Brothers level.
1: Yes, yes, and it's so it's it says split second but I was experiencing a kind of uh, I was seeing a kind of selective dyslexic effect where it was hard for me to not see the title as spilt second. Uh, and then also, because of the the way the L and the capital I come together, uh, sput second, kind of mm. like the Celebrity Jeopardy foreign flicks problem. <laughs> and I've just now wondered for the first time, what is the significance of the title split second?
5: I, I don't think it has any significance at all. Um, other than it just implies a pacing that is is largely backed up by the picture you know Uh stuff is just happening and characters are especially stone it just has a gut level response to everything so um, I guess that's the extent of it
1: yeah the, the movie might as well be called Exciting.
5: Exciting, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they didn't take long for Edgar Howard to, to pop up. He has a lot of screen time in this. And the first I think we see of him is he's walking up in leather, scratching his groin, putting on a pair of shades. Uh-huh. He's got a big old gun. Uh, and then uh, shortly thereafter, my fav- one of my favorite sequences in the film, uh, he lights his cigar with a blowtorch, then gets out of his vehicle Calls a dog a dickhead uh, on his way into a grimy nightclub. Uh, For some reason, it's just so—it's such a funny scene. Like when I saw that scene the first time I watched the film, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm watching all of this. This, I'm, I'm in."
1: Before he even gets in the car, we just get this corridor advancing scene. This is our introduction to our protagonist, and God, his costume! So he's got the the sci-fi stomper boots. I guess these Mm -hmm. are. These are actual all weather boots of some kind. I don't know what they're called, but they're the ones with a bunch of straps and buckles poking out all over the place. And then we get holster vision, like an extreme close up of all his different holsters and the guns in them. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's wearing a long coat, right? Calf length coat, because, hey, you know, how else are they going to know that you're bad?
5: Yeah. Despite it being like really humid looking in this city, like, I don't know. It just seems like. yeah, uh, the smells.
1: I don't know. You, you would not want to wear that coat, I don't think. Um and then and then he's wearing just plastic pants with a <laughs> gut stabber silver belt buckle. It looks like if he bends over to tie his shoes, it's gonna <laughs> cause internal bleeding in his large intestine.
5: Yeah, yeah. And Um, uh, you don't get the sense that he's purchased any new this
1: character has not purchased any new clothing since he's let himself go, you know, right, exactly. Uh, Sunglasses with tiny frames, like the beady little circular frames that are about the size of a quarter. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like they simultaneously like they kind of look cool, but it's also funny. Yeah. Uh, And cigar in his mouth at all times, just pathological oral fixation. It never leaves his lips. Yep,
5: constantly just a, a halo of smoke around his head. Uh-huh.
1: So in a way he's kind of a dystopian sci-fi poochie. Yeah,
5: yeah. But but again, it's Rudger Hauer and he he manages to strike that balance where it you know, you, you, in any given scene, you're either buying into the coolness or noticing again the wink in his performance and, and or the writing.
1: Uh, so here's a question: I don't know if you have an answer to. Maybe if you don't, maybe the listeners can add some input. Where does the long coats as cool thing come from in movies? Where you got a character who's just a real, ba- like a just bad to the bone? He's got to wear like a calf length coat. That's a great question. I don't know, but it's it's been around for a while at this point it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon like it was already in place at this time really realized in uh, matrix chic but yeah uh, but this was way before that and it was definitely in movies even before this
5: yeah i, I don't have an answer for that maybe that's one we can uh, our listeners will have some uh, some insight on
1: yeah, okay. Oh, and also this movie is if if anybody out there is actually like a gun owner or uh, into uh firearm safety at all, this movie will just make you shudder because all Rutger Hauer does is just walk around swinging big guns all over the place and tossing them around like duffel bags.
5: Yeah, yeah, uh gesturing with them. Uh, he'll stick a gun in your face for virtually no reason.
1: Yeah, just um, to play around, you know.
5: Yeah. Other character, other characters too pick up on this uh, this recklessness and start engaging in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and boy, there there's some big gun. Like the guns look good in this. Like the gun, these are some some uh, video game esque weapons. You know, right. like he has this pistol that just looks like a big just sci fi cannon. And then later these um, like minigun looking combat shotgun things. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, you're not joking about that. They they literally have like it's like a a, a minigun barrel. So like the multiple barrels and the rotating. I don't know what you call that piece but like 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 what uh Jesse Ventura has in in Predator except it's supposed to be shotgun barrels. Yeah, like a shotgun Gatlin gun. Yeah. Uh and then oh at the very beginning so we see him coming down the corridor showing off his cool look and then he gets into a Jeep and drives away and of course we see that his car is just a rolling sty. It is full of garbage. Mostly <laughs> Coffee cups and the containers of sugary products. Yeah, there's like he's a one brand guy when it comes to these
5: sugary things. I think maybe they're, they're donuts or chocolate balls. But like when we say that he lives on a diet that like that's directly from the film. They, they say that he lives on a diet of uh, of what caffeine, sugar and anxiety, No, No, caffeine, no sugar, chocolate and anxiety. Or is it sugar? Uh, I think coffee, sugar or sugar, chocolate and anxiety. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, and so that's like literally. If he's not smoking, and or if he's smoking, he's also liable to be consuming chocolate, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and putting sh- just tons of sugar. Like, there's a scene where he fills up his coffee in an office, and it's just like 30% sugar, and then the rest is coffee.
1: Yeah, and so he's driving around. You mentioned that he's on his way to this filthy nightclub he's going to, but also for some reason, at the very beginning, it's it's not established why this is at all. He's being pursued by police. So he is a de- police detective, but he's also like, while he's driving around, there are cops chasing him, being like, where's Harley Stone going? Just unbeatable. Yeah. <laughs> but he ends up at this dirty nightclub that he has to enter through like a corrugated aluminum sewer tunnel that has a bunch of wet socks dangling from the walls. And am I uh, don't know what the deal with that was, but he goes inside. He's told there's a two drink minimum and he orders two coffees with extra sugar <laughs> and he seems to be here trying to scope things out. It's like he's got a sixth sense that there is a, that there is doings afoot in the club and he's just scoping around and eventually ends up uh, uh, trying to make a phone call, I think, but it's hard to understand what he's saying on the phone. Cause he's still got the cigar in his mouth. He's not here for fun, though, because I don't think no. Harley Stone does fun. Not anymore. No, he does not go to the club to party. He goes to the club to find the killer. Yeah. And he's looking for somebody, I guess, the killer. But then meanwhile, there's a scream, and we find that a woman has been murdered in the bathroom. There's blood splattered everywhere. Her heart has been removed. And there is the, there are the words, I'm back, scrawled on the mirror in blood.
5: Yeah. And this is one of many scenes that will come in this film where a, a filthy environment is sprawled with blood um, and it it looks it looks great. Like it, this film, man, like, it, again, the aesthetics of this film are 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 pretty tremendous. And there's something about like it has a almost erotic fixation on blood and mm-hmm. death. Uh, and, and you see the first taste of it in this this scene.
1: And we see that Harley Stone, the character, is also fixated because he's mm-hmm. he, he's not just on a case. He is obsessed. He starts yeah. chasing down the blood trail that's running out of the bathroom. He's freaking out. He's pointing his gun at random people as he runs through these alleys. Other police are trying to like join in and help him, I think, but he's screaming at them to get out of his way. And here, I believe, we have a classic case of taking it too personal.
5: Yep, he's taking it too personal.
1: <laughs> Chief says but he's taking he's it too best. personal. That's right. <laughs> you can't stop him. He's the best. Yeah. Even if he is taking it too personal. And the whole chase, we get this dum-dum. We, we hear a heart beating and heavy breathing that suggests a psychic connection somehow between the killer and Harley Stone. But I guess somehow he gets subdued. I think he ends up like on a fire escape, just kind of... I don't know, uh, hyperventilating and, and leaning against the railing. And then we cut to the fan boats, you know, the Bayou boats, except they're out on the Thames. And, uh, we hear the chief of police thrasher talking to this other guy and we get some backstory on Harley stone. Is he talking to, uh, Dick Durkin?
5: I think so. Yeah. Cause okay. he's preparing him. Cause again, he's the best. We've got to use him, but we need a good cop. To pal around with him to keep keep tabs on him and keep him from getting out of hand.
1: Right. We need a nerd cop to put a leash on the loose cannon cop. Yeah. And uh, so it's just perfect cop movie cliches, but on a fan boat and on the Thames. And Thrasher talks about how, wow, it took four officers to subdue Harley Stone, and now he's in lockup. And Dick Durkin is so curious, what happened to Harley Stone to make him this way? And Thrasher says, well, a serial killer murdered his partner, Foster, three years ago, and he was there when it happened. And Dick Durkin says, "Oh, was it survivor's guilt? And Thrasher says, nah, just plain guilt. He had an affair with Foster's wife, left her, hit the booze, went over the edge. Now he lives on, here's the quote, anxiety, coffee, and chocolate. (laughs) Uh, Oh, and they specify that he's worked in every hellhole in the world, and he's been fired from all of them. And they say he's the best. (laughs) yeah the, the what
5: are these other hell holes I wonder? It's like there's yeah. a whole there's a whole universe of of Harley Stone adventures we don't know anything about
1: right so he's worked in like every city in the world or something, or only yeah. the ones that are hell holes, which are those yep,
5: yeah, just every like flooded monster ridden metropolis on earth
1: I guess we may have missed our chance for uh for a prequel that's like the adventures of harley stone in uh, in I don't know uh New Orleans or something.
5: Yeah, I don't know who the young Rudger Hauer would be. I mean, he it's, it's, it, can't really replace him.
1: Yeah, uh, but so Harley Stones back in the the station, he's raging against the bars and lock up, rattling them, and then he gets out eventually, and he's getting coffee. And here we get one of the great coffee scenes where he puts like <laughs> you know eighteen spoonfuls of sugar in,
2: um,
1: <laughs> and then we we meet uh, Pete Postlewaite, and, and they have a big confrontation. It is clear that uh, that Rudger and Pete do not like one another, right? Uh,
5: I think it's later revealed that Pete's character was also the slain partner's best friend, and so he holds it against him.
1: Right, and then there's a great chief chew-out scene, uh, yep. and so he gets invited into the chief's office, to Get uh, R- 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 Harley Stone gets chewed out, we hear all about how he's a loose cannon, how he's taking it too personal, how he's off the force, and then here's your new partner. Yep. And the new partner, of course, is Dick Durkin, the nerd from Oxford, who uh, is uh, getting filled in on the case. And he's like, I thought we were dealing with a psychotic, not a psychopath. (laughs) But the scoop on Dick Durkin is that he's an expert on serial killers. He's a a sort of lily-livered college boy who went to Oxford, and Harley Stone does not like him. I think Harley Stone, I think, clearly believes that that book learning is weak and puny.
5: Well, it's like any kind of uh, premeditation is is puny like uh, stone again he rules from the gut he he's he's just all action and 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 no chill there's just his brain is just a like an exploding rat of anxiety and Uh of you know fueled with caffeine and
1: sugar yeah and then oh 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 and then i so can you explain to me what you think is implied to have happened in the following scene because after right after the chew out Harley Stone goes back to his desk and there's just a a cooler with a heart in it there, like a cooler full of ice that's got a chewed up heart. And I don't know why it's on ice, because this is not going to be a successful transplant or or like donor organ. It has a bite taken out of it. But for some reason, it's on ice in a cooler sitting right next to his desk. Are we to understand that this heart has been delivered by the killer to his desk? I think –
5: okay, so out of picture, I would say this is a clear sign of an earlier draft of the of the, the plot. I think yeah. at one point, this screenplay did not have a monster in it. It was just a serial killer um, uh, flick. Or it was supposed to be a serial, serial killer story. I think if I'm going to try and read into the movie, I'm going to live within the narrative of the film. The monster killer villain must have hired a delivery service to deliver this heart. And he must have <laughs> – stolen the cooler and some ice from uh like a local store in order just to mess with stone
1: why the ice the heart's not going to be used for anything
5: i think it based the well out of out of picture the reason is because it looks really cool glistening among the ice you know it's a beautiful one of these scenes that again Uh things that are dead or bleeding in this film are the only things that are beautiful aside from kim Cottrell. everything else is grisly and dirty yeah um and, uh, and, and so I think that's the real reason. Otherwise, I guess just
1: shock value, just to be like, hey, here's this heart on ice. Maybe the dewy glistening cubes of ice as they slowly melt into a puddle, they symbolize the fleetingness of human life.
5: I guess so. Yeah, I, uh, it, It's impossible to say with this monster slash killer.
3: A new season of Bridgerton is here.
0: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio
1: app,
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered.
0: (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner?
2: Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots.
1: They pretty much go straight out into the field. So it's Harley Stone and Dick Durkin learning to be buddy cops and, and mm-hmm. finding out about each other, finding out about each other's minds and bodies as they investigate <laughs> the the scenes of the crime.
5: Yeah. And oh, man, there's some there's so many great hijinks uh, yeah. that, that come out of this as they you know feel each other. And it's basically, you know, odd couple mixed uh, buddy cop
1: kind of stuff. But it's just really well done there's a part where a murder gets called in and they go to investigate the murder and it's like on the top floor of an apartment building and we see that Harley Stone has trouble climbing the stairs I guess because he's out of shape and he has to stop for a cigar halfway up
5: (laughs) out of breath gotta stop and smoke
1: right Uh, but so we find there's another victim of the killer up in this apartment it's a 28 year old man who has had his heart torn out and Stone somehow knows intuitively what the time of death was and this is one of the hints uh, picking up on the the thing at the club earlier that there's a psychic connection between harley stone and the killer yeah oh and here we get a there's a really funny part here where there's just a rat execution <laughs> like uh yeah the the partner he harley stone pulls out his gun and it looks like he's about to shoot dick durkin in the face but instead he shoots right over his shoulder to shoot a like rat that was gonna bite him or something
5: It was a monster. It looked like a monster rat, too, because there are plenty of live rats in this picture. But right before he shoots it, it looks like it's a like a puppet rat Mm -hmm. and looks extra gross. So um, I don't know, Uh, you know, couch
1: that within the narrative as you will. Mm -hmm. Oh, and clearly the, the killer is trying to send a message with these crimes because. There are multiple messages for Stone. His dead former partner's gun is at the scene of this crime. And there is an occult symbol in blood on the ceiling. And Durkin immediately starts coming up with theories about this. He's, I guess, he knows all about astrology. And he's like, it's the symbol of Scorpio. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, used in the occult. <laughs> yeah, there's a
5: lot of occult uh, nonsense uh, that it's brought up uh, as they try and figure out this killer.
1: Oh, and then there's a there's a great moment where uh, they get they get to Harley Stone a dental cast based on the bites on the heart, and mm-hmm. it's a giant beast mouth. But still, after this, everybody's talking about a serial killer. Like this isn't just an obvious piece of evidence that it's a monster they're dealing with. Like, yeah, <laughs> do, do, is this a serial killer with a panther's head?
5: Because as we'll we'll find out later and becomes increasingly clear, this is not a human we're going up against. This is a monster. This is essentially a Grendel beast.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, some things happen. Harley Stone has another, like, anxiety attack in an alley and starts shooting his gun randomly at the sky. I think he has to get talked down. Uh, but eventually, finally, we get to meet Kim Cattrall. Uh So Harley Stone goes to, I think, the grave of his former partner. Is that right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and she's there. She's placing a memento on his grave. Is she supposed to be his dead partner's widow? I, I might have missed that. Yes, yes. Okay. Because they've previously had a relationship. Right. Okay. Well, as soon as he arrives, she shows concern for his well-being. She observes that he is, uh, he he is not uh, the cleanest or the most well-rested, <laughs> and that that he needs caring for. I think.
5: Yeah, yeah. So they go back to this apartment. Yeah, they go back
1: to his <laughs> filthy apartment that just looks like the inside of a of like an unethical animal enclosure. It is.
5: It is. I mean, it's like every scene in this film. It's like they went wild decorating it. There's so yeah. many grisly details in this this just pigsty that he lives in, uh, including live pigeons and live rats.
1: Yes, live pigeons, live rats. I so a few other details I want to run by you to make sure I'm not mistaken here. Number one. Does he keep his gun in a refrigerator?
5: Yes, though we don't have a clear indication that the refrigerator is
1: on. Okay. he Maybe it's just using a broken refrigerator as a shelf.
5: Yeah, he has an actual refrigerator in which he keeps other foul things. Yes. But there's like a, a convenience store refrigerator that might not be plugged up. that has like a shotgun and
1: some ammo in it. Okay, that's what I thought. And then also, yeah, the apartment's full of live pigeons and motorcycles there are just his his apartment is full of motorcycles how motorcycle signs as well yes how did he get them in there (laughs) did he get those harley davidson's up the steps (laughs) i guess so uh and then also we at one point we see inside his refrigerator which seems to contain exclusively coffee and then like mud There's <laughs> just a big just a big canister of mud that is spilled everywhere
5: uh, well i think there are chocolates in there uh, oh, okay. or perhaps don't i don't know they're, they're those chocolate things that he eats out of those little bags so the okay. refrigerator has those bags in there yeah and um yeah and also these foul looking chocolates
1: and so basically as soon as they get to his apartment while kim cattrall is still surveying the land of disgust she uh she he like falls asleep on the couch with a cigarette burning right next to his eye and she has to go put it out for him uh but i think the implication is this 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 filthy down on his luck cop uh just just needs his own his own personal kim control to help make his house into a home yeah and she's real she's not tremendously disgusted by this environment no she's, um, she she she, seems, she kind of rolls with it
5: yeah, uh, d- despite being like this angelic being, really.
1: Yeah. Oh, at some point also, I think to emphasize how dirty he is, he combs his hair with like a shoe polish brush. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Because he
5: does groom himself. He's not like, you know, completely abandoned self-care. Mm-hmm. But what self-care he does, it's reckless and in, you know, the wrong places, like
1: at a bar. Uh, at some point later... Durkin and Harley Stone are driving around and they're trying to, like, out-macho each other. Rutger Hauer is derisively tossing aside books that he finds in the car. The implication, I think, is that, like, books are for weak, puny men.
5: Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Uh, I think this is also the scene where we find out that that Durkin
1: has sex every night. Um, That is what he claims, though you wonder if he's just trying to impress Harley Stone. Yeah, Stone is doubtful. Oh, 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 and then there is this fascinating strength. So meanwhile, while they're out doing something, I don't remember what they're doing. They're driving somewhere and we see Kim Cattrall back at Harley stone's rancid cell. And she finds a bunch of chocolates that are just stuck to the outside of the filthy refrigerator in the shape of a heart. And then she plucks one off of the refrigerator and, facade and she eats it disgusting
5: (laughs) yeah this this made no sense that you would like why are they stuck there why are they being stored there again in a place that clearly uh, pigeons and rats have access to uh-huh. uh it seems like a terrible move even if you want ready access to your chocolate and then for her to, to be like oh th- this is fine this is normal i'm hungry for chocolate
1: oh wait no no no. i remember where they were going now this is when they're going out to get quote breakfast but they go to like the the moody nightclub that's playing "Nights in white satin yeah and then that's where he shaves he yeah. shaves over his plate at the bar But they're getting work done. They're figuring out what the killer might be. Right. Durkin has a theory. He thinks that – he's like, I think you and this killer are on the same psychic wavelength. What sign are you? And it's revealed that he's a Scorpio. And Durkin has all kinds of astrological theories about when the killer strikes – uh, and then meanwhile, there is a tense scene where the killer breaks into Harley's apartment while Kim Cattrall is taking a shower. It's very psycho and mm-hmm. he's sneaking around doing his heartbeat thing. And of course, Harley gets a bad feeling, uh, you know, through his psychic connection and him and Durkin run back to the apartment and they're, they're rushing up to the rescue. I was really afraid Kim Cattrall was going to be killed, but nope. Instead uh, they heard her scream earlier, but she screamed because the water got cold and instead somebody somewhere else in the building got their heart ripped out. Mm. Uh, so stone and Durkin chase. And then a lot happens really fast. We, we find somebody else with their heart ripped out. Uh, Durkin gets blasted with a shotgun by the killer and, and yeah, then, and what it looks like he's blasted through a window with it as yeah. well. So you just think he's dead at that point. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah, he he goes out the window after getting hit like in the belly with a scattergun, uh, and then we also find out Kim Cattrall gets bitten on the shoulder by the monster somehow. Uh, yeah, we do not we do not see that happen though. They're yeah. still talking about this being a a, a human killer, mm-hmm. uh, and again, this is one of the things where like I think the script. I don't know, like like you were saying earlier, like the earlier drafts are showing through. Because are we to understand in the final version of the movie that the monster shot Durkin with a shotgun?
5: Yes, yes, and if you, I was watching for it this time, uh-huh. and it's the shotgun is clearly held by monstrous hands. So our monster is clearly capable of utilizing modern tools. Well, like the the cooler that he somehow oh, got right, delivered yeah. through a shipping service, uh, but also he can handle a shotgun.
1: Okay, all right. But anyway, we find out after this big shootout, we find out everybody's okay. Durkin is in fact is not dead. He's like, haven't you ever heard of a bulletproof vest? and Kim Cattrall's okay and but Harley Stone has another panic attack again he starts freaking out in the alley and he has to get sedated by cops and i have to
5: say it is kind of interesting to see a hero suffer a panic attack in a film like split second mm-hmm. uh, like a believable panic attack you know not like a sure. and, and not one that, that reeks of like uh, machismo all that much because, but because generally in a film like this it's kind of a rule that stress never gets on top of your hero you know right They're, they're 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 up for the battle, you know. It's like Beowulf doesn't have a, a panic attack. Um, so I don't know. In a way, it's kind of a nice human element that that Harley Stone is is human enough to you know to not be able to to stay on top of it all.
1: Yeah, it is unusual. So he is. Uh, gruff and absurdly macho in that classic cop protagonist style, but he also clearly has real anxiety issues.
5: Yeah, like to the point where there's a medical intervention here because he's having such a panic attack.
1: Yeah, that that does not seem usual. I, I can't think of other examples of that. Maybe there are some. Uh, But, oh, oh, and then we get a good flashback scene where it's revealed that he saw his partner get slaughtered by the killer. He just like they're walking around in ankle deep water in some gross place and and his partner just gets yanked down under the water. And then the killer somehow mauls him, uh, mauls Harley Stone, leaving a big scratch on his arm. And then uh, after uh, after Harley Stone comes to later, Durkin sees the big scar going down from his shoulder to his arm. And he's like, that's it. That's the psychic connection. Uh, but back at the station, there's another great chief chew out scene where there's suddenly just an exposition dump. They're, they're like, mm-hmm. Oh, we got to move this plot along. So there, you find out that during the gunfight earlier, Rutger Hauer shot the killer a bunch of times and yet it's, it's still alive. So something's up. And then they also get some lab reports back where they say that the killer's DNA is polymorphic. It has the DNA of all its previous victims put together, including Harley Stone, I think, from when he got scratched by it. And mm-hmm. it has his dead former partner's fingerprints. Mm-hmm. And it has, like, rat DNA and rat virus DNA. <laughs> yep. <laughs> This scene is a is a supreme pizza. They're, they're getting you everything, all the toppings. click all the boxes. Yes. Uh, oh, and then there's a great. So right after this, there's a great scene where Durkin and Harley Stone go to the morgue because they realize, oh, the the, the killer didn't manage to get the last victim's heart. The heart is still in them. So so they're like, oh, it's going to come back to the morgue and try to get the heart. So they go to the morgue. This is actually kind of a cool looking scene. The way it's yeah. set up with like all the plastic and there are these nasty like IV bags everywhere but
5: but otherwise it's a very sterile and white environment yeah because again this film it it, it, there's an eroticism of death Uh so the cleanest holiest place uh, the holiest uh, scene in the entire film the holiest
1: setting is the morgue yeah this is this it feels like um, a heaven with corpses in it And since they're returning to the morgue here, I think this would have been the occasion for Wendy Carlos's return to the morgue theme, which you can hear a clip of online. Yeah. Uh, And uh, once again, we wish we'd had that score. Uh, But so they're creeping around trying to find things. They end up pointing their guns at some unwitting lab technician uh, who's like, oh, no, what's going on? And then there is a really funny part where they start they start to see that the ceiling panels are jiggling. Yeah, and, and I think that means, uh-oh, the monster is up there, and they have to face the monster. And there's a big scene where they start shooting at it while it's running around, and eventually it escapes. But Durkin, having now confronted the monster firsthand, is a changed man.
5: Yes, and and here we get to probably my favorite part of the whole film: the conversion. Yes, um,
1: this is amazing.
5: Yeah, this is where—so Durkin has encountered the killer, and uh, he is shaken by this. And he he undergoes what is kind of a a, a religious conversion, Mm -hmm. and Stone is here to guide him along the way. So he's like, that anxiety you're feeling now? Well, here, first of all, that anxiety is good. That will fuel you, but you need more fuel. You need these chocolates. Eat this chocolate. Uh Drink of this burnt coffee that's 30% sugar. Um, And now let's get you a giant gun right out of, you know, some ridiculous
1: video game. Uh This
5: is the Harley Stone own way. And this is how you're going to live your life
1: from here on out. And I am not exaggerating chocolate, sugar, coffee, and the guns from doom. And he, he converts him to the religion of Harley stone. You are a thousand percent correct. Yeah. And he stays converted for the rest of the picture. It's beautiful. And he basically reverts to adolescence, so he he like really starts loving Harley Stone's motorcycles in his apartment. Yeah. Like he sits on them and he goes like, "Broom, broom."
5: <laughs> yep, yep. And he keeps mumbling; it's like a mantra. He's like, "We need, we need big freaking guns.
1: Yeah, we need big freaking guns. Big freaking guns." And he he also starts dressing like Harley Stone. He, we, yep. I don't remember when this starts, but he puts on a big leather coat. Yep. <laughs> So again, it's this. so like this is this was no
5: accident. This mm-hmm. is this is brilliant. Uh,
1: and then I guess maybe after this point, I'm going to describe the plot in less detail, but we'll just say it goes into third act overdrive, and there are various people getting kidnapped. Durkin gets kidnapped, and then uh, Harley Stone goes back to get him. Michelle McLean gets kidnapped. That's Kim Cattrall. She goes missing, mm-hmm. uh, and then they're trying to find her. There's a great part where. Uh, after durkin has been kidnapped the monster has apparently like carved all of this like occult symbology into his chest yeah. And then they realize like wait it's not occult symbols it's a map and they're like holding a map up to his chest while he's bleeding his everywhere bleeding, test. Yeah, it's bleeding so
5: chest yeah bleeding chest it looks it looks awful like he needs to go to the emergency room but you know it's like all right bundle up uh-huh. grab some chocolate we're going out in the field
1: and there's a big set piece at the end where they have to go rescue Kim Cattrall in like a flooded subway tunnel and they confront the monster and there are various kinds of like traps and weapon setups they use against him they try to use electricity and they try to use explosives and then in the end, I, this was totally inexplicable to me. Did you understand why Harley Stone was able to do a Temple of Doom style reverse heart ripping on the monster? I think it was,
5: uh, I think it's kind of like when Obi-Wan battles General Grievous, uh-huh. like General Grievous is damaged enough in the battle, uh, that Obi-Wan's able to, uh, to, to target, uh, the, the, the inner weak spot. Okay. Um, So I think that's basically what's happened here is like all the their attempts to blow him up and shoot him and to electrocute him. It managed to expose the heart enough Uh that he was able to reach in and pull this grotesque, like black, just solid black heart out of the monster that continues to beat uh, like nonstop Mm -hmm. after he rips it out. And then he shoots
1: it while it's in his hand. Point blank. uh, (laughs) It looks like he would have shot his fingers off. Yes. (laughs) Uh, uh, but so one of my favorite things about this movie, I kept thinking like, OK, so what are we going to find out about the monster in the end? We're going to find out like it's actually his former partner as a, or something like that. But nope, it's it like it has no con- it's not any character we previously knew. It doesn't really have any causal connection to anything else that happens in the story. It's only really apparently after Harley Stone just because they happen to have met before. Like it's just a random monster.
5: Yeah, and but but it's increasingly difficult to try and figure out what this monster is supposed to be uh-huh. because we have all of these strange qualities that are brought up, uh, some oftentimes conflicting. So we know it's it's humanoid but not human. It lives in the sewers and flooded ruins. It has rat DNA, but it also has DNA from all of its victims. So it's some sort of a gene stealer. Mm-hmm. It's intelligent. It knows human language. It knows occult symbology. It can use weapons and tools and delivery services. Uh, but it's also this total Grindel monster. It's a bestial killer. It has monster hands and monster teeth. Um we're largely left to assume it is completely organic and or naked, but in one of the rare glimpses we see of it, it has this kind of motorcycle visor yeah. kind of head that makes you think, well, maybe it's part robot or something uh, or costume
1: or something as well. It looks like a cross between the Xenomorph, Venom, and like Judge Dredd with the helmet. Uh, well, this more specifically reminds
5: me of Judge Death, I believe. Um, oh, okay. Uh, one of the, 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 the foul, evil judges where he have like the big teeth underneath the – yeah, I think that's Judge Death. I may have my judges confused. Well, I, but... I don't
1: know Judge Dreadworld all that well. I just mean like, yes, you're exactly right. Its head does look like a helmet with a solid black visor.
5: Yeah. And on top of that, it – it, it may think it's the devil or is the devil. It eats human hearts. There's a psychic connection between it and the people it's harmed, or at least with stone. Uh, it's it is itself obsessed with the occult and the Chinese zodiac. It's active during the year of the rat. And again, its weird black heart continues to beat outside its body. So you're left asking, like, what exactly is this thing? Is Did a human killer mutate into this in the sewers? Is it an emergent horror, a genetically engineered monster, an alien? We just
1: don't know. Is it a rat virus that took on bodily form? What what was the part about it being a rat virus? There's just like one line about that.
5: Yeah. Again, uh, perhaps all these rewrites are the cause, but ultimately I really liked this. I love not Uh knowing what this thing is because again, monstrosity is often about category confusion and this yeah. monster is confusing yes <laughs> you know, yes there's a chaotic ambiguity about it and i fi- find that i ultimately really like that it's it's emerged from the inhuman realm and humans are able to kill it possibly uh we have that stinger with the bubbles mm-hmm. but human understanding fails any attempt to comprehend it and so it it has this kind of pure monstrosity to it that that works. And and they also don't shoot it a lot. We don't see much of it. So there's a lot of mystery regarding what it is.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, Oh, one thing I forgot to mention that I thought was great about the conversion to the religion of Harley stone is that you also see after the plot is resolved, uh, like further, uh, religious disciplining to keep him on the path because Durkin at one (laughs) point, well, they ask after they've beaten the monster. I think Kim Cattrall says, is it dead? And uh, Durkin says, existentially, that's difficult to answer. Philosophy of death is one of my hobbies. And then they both yell at him like, Durkin! (laughs) I think the implication is that, uh uh-oh, it sounds like he's reverting to his puny milksop intellectual personality. And they need to, like, you know, whip him to make sure he adheres to the Harley Stone path.
5: Yeah, eat some chocolate and have some more uh, coffee and cigars right now. Oh yeah. Um, I feel like the the Harley stone way is also similar to to like my taste in films. Uh, (laughs) And perhaps okay. someone out there might might see a, one of the films we we cover on Weird House, and for the first time, and experience a similar conversion. You know, like something has shaken you, uh, something has changed after seeing a film like Split Second or Mad Love or Teens in the Universe. What do I do now? Well, let us recommend this cinematic diet of chocolate, brain-jarring coffee, and violent excess. Yeah, put that coat on. Yeah, put this coat on. <laughs> Have a seat on this motorcycle. Uh, <laughs>
1: Get you some plastic pants.
5: <laughs> yeah. So, so this one's really fun. I, I recommend it. Um, let's see places to see it. Uh, I think we both watched it uh, streaming on Amazon Prime. It's part yeah. of the the, the Prime uh, uh, streaming plan right now, at least in the United States. It's probably. I think it's one of these films that's ultimately available wherever you uh, buy or rent things digitally. I forgot the Yeah, I forgot to check if there was like a really good Blu-ray or anything of it,
1: but. Um, uh i I hope there is if not there should be one wait i thought you i thought the last time you watched it you rented it from videodrome uh no last time where did i hmm hmm our local video store where yes you can still rent movies on disc
5: yeah excellent place i well i would have rented it there oh well you know i take that back there is this is not the the edition that i rented if i did rent it but there is a very handsome looking blu-ray of this available now criterion um uh, not Criterion, uh, looks like it's MVD uh, I'm not familiar with that But it has some wonderful brand new art on the cover That looks absolutely snazzy uh, Looks like this came out Oh, this just came out in August of last year uh, So I would say Yeah, check this out I feel kind of foolish for not picking this up on Blu-ray now uh, And it looks like it, Oh my goodness, it has audio commentaries It has a bunch of stuff on it So yeah, uh, if, if you're in, in, into this
1: uh, Go check it out The tagline on the cover. So a few things about the box art. I think this is the original box art that may have the the newer version may have something more elaborate. Yeah. First Mm -hmm. of all, the old box art looks like a Sega Genesis game. Yes. (laughs) You see that? And then second, uh, I want to talk about the taglines. It says Rutger Hauer split second. And then it says, he's seen the future. Now he has to kill it. (laughs) Oh, and he does. Yeah, he he kills the future. Oh, and it also says he'll need bigger guns. It's like they couldn't decide. So they they included both possible taglines. Yeah,
5: I think that. So, yeah, this this Blu-ray looks impressive uh, and has a mini poster uh, that comes with it with the original style VHS artwork. But I don't see anything about um, a Wendy Carlos score being uh, an option on there. So uh,
1: sadly, that will remain uh, lost to history. If you've got connections in the film world, you want to put out a, a, a new remastered version of Split Second with the all new original Wendy Carlos score, I would pay top dollar for that disc. Yeah, we're talking 30, 40 bucks here. Yeah. So make it happen. <laughs>
5: All right. Uh, Well, we're going to go ahead and close this one out, but we'd love to hear from everyone uh, out there. You know, people who saw Split Second back in the day when it came out, Mm -hmm. uh, people who've discovered it since then. Uh, What are your thoughts on the film, the performances? Uh, Yeah, everything's on the table. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of weird house cinema, uh, this publishes every Friday in the stuff to blow your mind podcast feed. You can find that feed wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and we just ask that you rate, review and subscribe. Uh, as I have been doing, if you go to some that's S E M U T A M U S I C.com. Uh, that's a little personal blog, but I will put up, um, Bits about the episodes of Weird House there. So some of these other media uh, bits that I've discussed here, I'll include them there for your easy access.
1: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. you. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for?
5: Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was voted.
0: But be careful. side.